This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah! Carlson, yes! Thank you everybody for tuning in to another summer series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best fancy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski, and with me, as always, Brian Calm. Wow, Elon, you must be so excited because this is like the first episode in a while where we're actually digging into some players in anticipation for the rapidly approaching fantasy hockey season 2016-2017. Very exciting. I mean, we kind of have been doing that all summer because as we've been talking about all these like players who we thought didn't do as well as we expected and players who we were wondering if they're going to bounce back or not. Obviously, we've been discussing it in this summer series all about, you know, how we think they'll do next year. But here we go in terms of we're going to talk about going into your drafts, which players have gained elite status, who are the guys who last season maybe could have been drafted middle of the draft, maybe late. Now they're probably going to be drafted in the top two or three spots. Before we get into that, let's mention that we are presented by the best fantasy hockey website out there, dauberhockey.com. That's where you go for all your fantasy hockey news. You've, if you've been listening to us, you've been hearing all summer that they've been busy making articles every single day. And now they have, of course, their flagship Dauber Hockey Guide and their projections. They let it out really early and then they just keep updating it all the way until your draft. So you got to get in on it now. Go to DauberHockey.com and get that guide. And it's not just like straight up numbers or projections. It's not just going to say, well, so-and-so is going to get 60 points this season because of this and this. No, there's like entire chapters on drafting strategy and different types of players you want to look for. Guys who are threats in multiple categories and peppered throughout are wonderful little tidbits such as this one. Elon, did you know there were only two players in the NHL last year who scored more than 75 points? but fewer than 18 on the power play. Man, now I want to guess who they are. Anyone in the chat room have an idea? Who is someone who scored a lot of points pretty much all at even strength? Oh, I know you always talk about these even strength guys and how much you love them, and I can't remember. Give me the names. No, all I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that we're going to talk about one of them later in the show, and the other one, maybe you should just pick up the guide to find out, or maybe I'll blurt it out when we get to the guy that I actually have scheduled to talk about. 
<laughs> okay. All right, fine. I, I'll get it out of you. So before we get into these newly elite players, we also have a list of players who we think have lost elite status. We might not get to them this week. We'll see. But before we get into all of that, let's just talk about a few fantasy hockey headlines of the week. We have to mention the big news out of Colorado. Patrick Waugh resigned out of nowhere. All these people have been talking for so long. I feel like there's a few coaches that especially you, Brian, and all the other advanced stats guys have talked about. Who are the really bad coaches that hold their teams back? And there was like... Patrick Waugh was definitely on the list along with maybe uh, the new coach for Anaheim and like Pittsburgh's old coach. And I remember all these guys we talked about, like when Pittsburgh fired, I think it was Johnston, and we thought, okay, now finally the Pittsburgh players are going to do well. Do we feel the same with the Colorado players now that Patrick Waugh is gone? I mean, if you look at their leading scores from last season, not not too great, right? Like their leading score is Matt Duchesne with 59 points. He's a guy who was a previous point-per-game player. Gabriel Landeskog had 53. Nathan McKinnon, only 52 points in 72 games. Carl Soderberg, he was good, but I mean... Should he even had the role he had? Then you get to like Tyson Berry, a guy who's maybe we'll talk about as maybe a new elite fantasy defenseman. He had 49 points in 78, which is good. 49 points in 78 games. But maybe he has a higher upside now that Patrick Waugh is gone. I'm curious to get your take, Brian. Should we now be valuing the Colorado players higher because we think that they're going to be able to get a better coach? Lots of digital ink was spilled. Not a lot of real ink, it turned out, on how awful a coach Patrick Waugh was. Now, the whole thing just wasn't working out. His systems, well, it didn't look like there really were any. The team was just getting killed in possession night after night after night. And he seemed to harbor grudges against certain players like Matt Duchesne and like Tyson Barry who he never put out in key situations. Now, I understand if you think Tyson Barry isn't your prime defensive candidate on your blue line, but when you're throwing out guys like Nick Holden or Nate Gennon out instead of him on a regular basis, sorry, Josh Holden, then maybe, I don't know, I just feel like it might be time to reevaluate some of the decisions. And my only worry is that even with letting go of Wah, the management team that was happy to keep behind the bench for another season is still in place. So you have Joe Sackick at the helm who's going to start the search for another head coach. Is he going to find someone who's actually better than Patrick Waugh? Is he going to have any idea what he's doing? Because he essentially was endorsing the system. It was Waugh who seemed to up and leave. And that doesn't make it a slam dunk for me that these guys automatically jump in their fantasy relevance or fantasy upside. It'll be interesting to see what new coach is hired in Colorado. And at that point, Elon, maybe we'll look a little deeper into the impact it might have on players and how coaches in general actually might have an impact on the production and scoring chances of players. Yeah, a funny question by Patty in the chat room. How many great players are good coaches? She says zero. Then Julian chimed in saying maybe Toe Blake might be the exception. But I know Wayne Gretzky definitely didn't have much success when he took the bench in Arizona or Phoenix, I guess. You mentioned how Patrick Waugh tends to hold grudges against some players. One player who he never held a grudge against, even when he was in some legal trouble, was Semyon Varlamov. Varlamov was his guy, and he had his back 
always, even though when you look at the numbers last year, Varlamov had a 914 save percentage, which is below league average. That's pretty weak. Compare that to the backup, Calvin Pickard, who in 20 games had a 922 save percentage. So I wonder if a new coach might also mean good things for Calvin Pickard or Picard. Maybe the new coach will say, okay, you guys, you're both going to have a shot at the number one goalie spot when if Patrick Wall was coach, it would have been for sure Varlamov's number one. It could. Pickard was a solid goalie in the small sample size of games that he's seen in, you know, parts of the last two, three years. And so I feel like maybe it's time for him to get somewhat of a look, maybe even in a 1B position because Varlamov, you know, gets injured a lot. Maybe resting more often would help him with that. I don't know. But you're right, Elon. This perhaps opens the door to there being a goalie contest in the Colorado crease. I'm not saying all of a sudden that Varlamov is not as good as Pickard or is worse than Pickard, but at least we might start seeing some internal competition, which just was not there when Wawa was behind the bench. Yeah, so this is exciting, and we'll follow this, and I guess bring this up again when Colorado does actually... Uh, sign a new head coach. I guess we won't get into speculation. Matthew's asking in the chat for some speculation. Let's just, you guys could go ahead. We'll wait and talk about it when it happens. A couple other headlines before we get into our newly elite players. There were a few minor signings over the past couple of weeks. I guess most notably Antoine Vermette. You brought him up, Brian, right at the end of the last podcast saying that he was waived by Arizona and you said no big deal. He's probably not going to make an impact on his new team. He ends up getting signed by the Ducks to a two-year contract. Seems to me like he's going to fit very nicely there as the third line center, I guess, behind Getzlaff and Kessler. There was maybe some thought that Ricard Raquel would be a center on the third line. Seems like now for sure Raquel will get to play a winger on the top line like he was last year. It seems like it. So I think this is good news for Raquel. And as far as Antoine Vermette goes, I mean, third line center on Anaheim, I don't know, 30, 40 points. Should we expect any higher for him? No, I think that's fair. Vermette's numbers for a while now have been that of maybe a third line player at best. And whatever offense he's gone has just been a virtue of his situation if he happens to be playing in a top six role. I'm not sure he's that capable at this point in his career of generating a whole lot on his own. So I think it is probably not great news for someone who might be playing as his winger. So depth wingers on Anaheim might be in bad shape because of this. However, I don't think that we had much faith in depth wingers in Anaheim in the first place. So it's not a huge change. Don't expect anything from Vermette. He's not draft worthy this year. I remember last year there were little spurts, especially towards the end of the year when he snuck onto Arizona's power play unit and picked up a couple points here and there on a semi-regular basis. As far as, you know, a free agent pickup, it was actually a pretty good option. But in Anaheim, I expect that option to more or less disappear. Yeah, I guess Vermette has value in leagues that count face-off wins. He's known for being good at face-offs. So maybe if that's your situation and then you just want some offense from him, you know, he had 38 points last year for what it's worth. So not even a half a point per game. But if you need his face-off wins, maybe he could match that. I don't know. I wouldn't expect any more than the 38 points. Okay, and then the other signing, which I guess hasn't happened officially yet but it looks like it's pretty much for sure redeem verbata looks like he's going to be signing a one-year contract with the coyotes in arizona so i guess arizona loses vermet but maybe they'll pick up a verbata so maybe not that bad of a trade and you know verbata of course as we know had such a bad year last year but two years ago on vancouver he had like 30 goals so which verbata do you think is going to come back to arizona do you think he could have any fantasy value next year well, I just don't know why nobody I have ever heard has made the pun, can Verbata be redeemed 
in uh, his new role in Arizona after, yeah, an awful year in Vancouver, just 27 points in 63 games. A lot of people were thinking, oh, great, ice time with the Sedins, and that's going to translate to a lot of goals. Well, he didn't spend most of the season with the Sedins. He spent most of the season with rookie Bo Horvat and, like, fringe NHLers Sven Berchi, and then some some of it with the Sedins, and another chunk with Brian McCann, another rookie, and Chris Higgins, who is not an NHLer anymore. So I don't know what a lot of people could have expected from Verbata. I mean, if you put on top of all that, his shooting percentage was not very good. And, like, when did he ever have the puck when he was on the ice either? Vancouver, it wasn't just that his teammates were bad. The system did not seem to be very effective. There was a lot going wrong while Verbata was on the ice. I'm hoping that it won't be the case for him in Arizona. I feel like he could probably deserve, after the career he's had, another year or two, at least a better way to cap off his career. I don't think 20, 25 goals is out of the question if everything goes well. Maybe that's a little bullish is that the one where i think i'm high on him yeah i should be barish whichever one that is i can never keep them straight but i think i'm just i'm hopeful for riding verbata to hit 45 maybe 50 points if things go well yeah well two years ago when he was on phoenix he had 51 points in 80 games 20 goals and 31 assists so if he could hit that again he did it two years ago or I guess three years ago in Phoenix, and he did even better in Vancouver. So yeah, if he could hit 50 points, that would be great. Maybe someone to draft. He's someone I might think about in like the last round of my draft when I'm picking up the guy that I very much might uh, drop for another free agent like a week later. But I think Verbat is the kind of guy that I would take a chance on at that point. So keep him on your radars. Let's see how he does in training camp. Let's see if he could get into the top six. He might have some competition, right? As a right wing, he'd have to beat out like Duclair and Shane Doan, who had a really nice... A resurgence last year. It's a couple old guys over in Arizona. We'll see. Actually, it'll be fun to try to bet. Anyone want to make a bet on Verbata versus Doan? I, I actually don't know which one I would take. I do. I'll take Verbata. Even okay. though, like, I, you know, I wouldn't draft Verbata in most formats. I might even leave him, you know, right to the end. I feel like there's guys with more upside around the time that you might draft Verbata, but he would definitely be on my watch list exiting the draft if Nobody else takes him, that is. He'd probably be one of the free agents that I'm hoping to pick up. Right, and then uh, Julian's actually mentioning in the chat here, maybe back to Vermette, maybe he could challenge Kessler as 2C, or maybe at least he's going to take away some face-off wins from Kessler. So again, back to the face-off wins leagues, which we don't talk about very much on the podcast, but maybe there is some impact there. Maybe Vermette gets some face-off wins and maybe hurts Kessler. And that's been Kessler's like kind of main value. I guess hits and face-offs were always like when we're getting questions about Ryan Kessler. You know, he did have a nice run last year, I'll admit that. But aside from that run, you know, we get questions like, who should I keep, this guy or Kessler? It's like, of course the other guy. Kessler's not even that good. He's like a half point per game guy. But they go, no, my league counts face-offs. Maybe this will actually lead to him getting less face-off wins. Okay, Brian, the other one, uh, that I wanted to mention before we move on to our elite players. This is a guy who you used to love so much. You drafted him really high in the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League last year, I remember. And then you got one game out of him before he got injured for the season. James Wisniewski gets signed by Tampa Bay. I guess it's just like a tryout. Hopefully he could make the team. Any chance he could have some fantasy value? He used to be a really great fantasy option. He had a couple of really good years. Yeah, and what I said in the Facebook group was that I kind of wish he had signed with a different team that he might have more fantasy value with. When he's on Tampa, I mean, they've already got Hedman, and then they've got Strawman if that doesn't work out. Then they have Garrison if that doesn't work out. Where Wisniewski fits in all that? 
probably somewhere between Strawman and Garrison, depending on how things are going at the moment. But it's just not a situation where it was in Carolina where he was going to be able to step in and probably get some power play time and probably get some key minutes. He's never really been known as the most defensively responsible guy. He's been, you know, sort of just a, a decent top four sort of guy with offensive upside. And I just don't know how much of that offensive upside we're going to get to see in Tampa. I wonder if they give him a turn on the power play, Elon, because we've talked a lot about how Victor Hedman is their main power play guy, but he's still busy collecting most of his points at even strength. Strawman's had success there. I wonder if and when Wisniewski gets a turn and if he's able to take advantage of it. It's curious to me that he didn't stick with Carolina. I mean, he played like four and a half minutes for them after signing a contract with them. And I don't know which party didn't want who back. I, you know, Carolina's depth chart shifted a little bit in the time since they signed him. And now, and maybe he has different career goals or they weren't ready to offer the same contract. I don't know. It's a bit of a red flag for me. And I think his value definitely takes a hit this year. I can't see myself drafting him nearly as high as I did last year, if at all. I definitely wouldn't be drafting James Wisniewski, but I guess someone to watch. Uh, Okay, let's now go, Brian. I think we're ready finally to talk about who are the players that we think have finally gained elite status. Players who last year wouldn't have been drafted as high and this year now. But I guess before we get into that, maybe we should just go over some definitions. Let's talk about some key terms here. What do we mean by elite status? Because you and I have been discussing this over the past couple of days. And I think we actually have different definitions for the word. Like I'm going more on emotion. When I see elite, like I think of it like this. When someone sends a, uh, their roster to me and wants me to like audit it or you know comment on like where if they're weak or strong, the first thing I like to do is kind of scan the roster and see okay how many guys are there that are elite. And to me, like elite is just like the guys you could really just depend on. Most nights they're going to give you points. They're just going to produce all the time. If it's like Sunday in a matchup and you're losing, you kind of want to look and see okay at least I've got Alex Ovechkin playing today, so I know that I'm going to hope I'm likely to get a goal and like a ton of shots. Or good thing I have Holtby in net, so I'm likely going to get the win you know that's kind of the elite guy for me the guys who you draft really early in your draft and you lean on them all year long that's to me my definition what would you say you'd call an elite player in fantasy because we throw that term around quite often to me an elite player is less of that in-season experience and more of who do I expect to see at the top of every measure and piece of data that I look at when I'm evaluating players. So there's the usual suspects like Crosby and Tarasenko and Malkin and Tavares and well, Giroud to a point. And then you want to know who belongs in that group. How can we add a name to that group justifiably? So that's one thing I think of when I think of who's elite. And Elon, though, I, I definitely get with your end of the definition too. Like I want somebody who I can rely on night in, night out to produce. And instead of looking exactly at one specific player and trying to figure out what's going on with them, an elite player is somebody who I can just trust to be in that top tier and count their names alongside all the other consistent producers. Yeah, and so, okay, I guess we could get started. Here's the most obvious name. Actually, I'd say there's two really obvious names, but here's one that is undeniable. This guy, if he wasn't elite going into last season, and maybe he wasn't just because there were some question marks, because it was his first year. How much can you depend on a guy in his rookie season? This year, there's pretty much no doubt about it. Connor McDavid is an elite fantasy asset. He played 45 games last year, unfortunately had that injury. But aside from that, he played 45 games, got 48 points over a point per game. And in today's NHL, 
That is no small feat. That would have been enough. Hit That's an 87-point pace. That could have won him the Art Ross Trophy two years ago. Uh, but now... Here he is, Connor McDavid. Like, I'm seeing in projections over 100 points. I've seen in a few of the projections I've downloaded so far. And I'm curious to ask you, Brian, at this point, is he the front runner for the Art Ross Trophy? Like, obviously, there's other categories, and you have to think of things like Ovechkin is probably more valuable in leagues that count hits and shots on goal and things like that. But just straight up points, I think there's a very good argument to be made that Connor McDavid is the leading candidate right now to win the Art Ross Trophy. And I'm curious to know, like, how high would you draft him? Is he, like, can you defend drafting Connor McDavid first overall, like, in a one-year league? Yes, I think you can. I think he's a front runner for the Art Ross Trophy for sure. And that's not, like, a controversial opinion or anything. So I'm not putting myself out there at all by saying that. I think you consider him in that top group of people you draft in that Again, Elon, just going back to elite, that's, that's what we mean, right? Everybody has a list of the top 10 forwards to go in fantasy or the top 15 draft picks overall. Connor McDavid's name belongs within those. He was second last year amongst all forwards in all situations, points per 60 minutes, behind only the Art Ross winner, Patrick Kane. And not only that, but he was still like a fair step ahead of third place, Jamie Benn, in that metric. And that whole scoring situation was thanks hugely to, believe it or not, not his goals, but his assist totals. If you look at his stat line from last year, he had 16 goals on 105 shots in 45 games played, which is not great. Like that's a goal every three games. That's maybe two shots, a little more than that per game. Those are not stellar offensive fantasy numbers. On top of that, if you look at shot attempts, it's not like he was firing a lot of pucks and they just weren't making it to the net. His shot attempts were down in general too. I'd say pretty middling would be the word I'd use to describe it. But how much can you ask from a rookie who's already done, you know, how are you going to really challenge him on how he's scoring his points? And what I expect from him as he goes into this year is to continue growing into a bigger role with the Oilers, especially with Hall gone. And, you know, if he turns into a guy who's just going to cash in on a whole bunch of assists because he's drawing so much attention away from the Eberlays and the Pouliots that he spends his time on ice with, then, you know, who am I to judge exactly? I think I'm just happy to have him on my team either way. The bottom line to me is that he showed enough in his first half season in the NHL that I am expecting points from him night in, night out in his sophomore campaign. And that is why I consider Connor McDavid to be elite going into this season. So, Brian, I still want to get the answer, your answer to this question. Who do you think is going to win the Art Ross Trophy, Connor McDavid or the field? And also, would you draft him first overall in the points-only league? I guess that's, those, those questions are part and parcel. But just really quickly, do you think he's going to be the best? No, I thought I made that clear. I'm going with the field. Why do you? I don't know. I kind of think so. I could see him getting over 100 points this year. Like, he was just a rookie, and he was already among the top guys in points per game. I know Patrick Kane was, like, very far ahead of him, but I would assume he's going to get even better. And also, he came back from injury. That can't be easy, and he still was able to put up elite production. Like, I don't know. I just, I just got a feeling, Brian. I mean, I don't think I'm going out on a limb very much. Patty's making fun of me in the chest. Like, oh, you're going out on a limb there, Elon. Saying Connor McDavid's going to be good. But... I don't take it for what you will. I think I'm going to make my early projection now, which which I'm sure I'll change like a whole bunch of times. I think for me, he's my front runner for the Art Ross trophy. Hopefully, hopefully he doesn't get injured this year. Do you think I'm crazy? No, I think it's a reasonable take to say Connor McDavid is going to win the Art Ross. I think it's also reasonable to say he won't. Oh, sure. You know what? To answer your question, I don't know if there's anybody else that 
I could say with greater confidence is going to win the Art Ross than Connor McDavid. How's that for answering your question? So it sounds like you're saying he's your odds on favorite. I'm not saying that Connor McDavid versus the field, he like has an over 50% chance, but I'm saying maybe he has a 20% chance and the next highest guy has an 18. Obviously there's lots of contenders. You know, you got Ben and Sagan and Crosby. Like I don't need to go through the list. But okay, maybe we're close. I think we're close. Ryan in the chat is saying he's with me. So that's all I need. One thing I'll say against Connor McDavid, if you're in a categories league for fantasy and you care about more things than just points, he's not going to help you with hits. He's not going to help you with blocks. He, like you said, Brian, he didn't take like a ton of shots on goal, 105 shots in 45 games. So a little bit over two shots a game, nothing compared to like a Brent Burns, who is also a guy I want to get to this episode. But as far as points go, and especially assists, like you say, and probably power play points, he is going to be extremely valuable. Okay, I guess we want to go to the next guy, but I know what you're thinking, Brian. I'm going to beat you to it. You know what's really hard to do is to see Connor McDavid live because it's such a hot ticket. That's why you have to go early, I guess, and buy your tickets. I'm sure the season's tickets and the games are available now. So wherever you live, you got to go to SeatGeek. And look up when your local team is playing Edmonton so you could see Connor McDavid in the flesh. This is a great site to buy your tickets because all the prices are right there up front. No hidden fees. You can get the value of the ticket. They tell you if they think it's like a good price or a bad price. And if it's a bad price, you could subscribe to the ticket and get notified when the price goes down. This is the premier place to go to buy tickets. So you should definitely check it out. SeatGeek. Yeah, and SeatGeek has a special offer for everybody listening right now to this show. That means you, you can save $20 off your first purchase with SeatGeek. You just download the app, type in the promo keeping, as in our show name, and then you will get a $20 rebate on the first purchase you make with SeatGeek, which by the way, Elon, I was all ready to go and say that I just signed up for a price alert today. You can just punch in your email and they'll send you a note when the price for an event you're interested in drops. What's the event you're interested in? I was interested in the Tragically Hip coming to Ottawa in two days. I've never been to a Tragically Hip show in my life. I've never considered it, but man, they've got, they've got a lot of good songs. So are you going to go? If the tickets drop below ah. $220 on SeatGeek, I'll get an email and then perhaps I will buy a ticket. We'll see. Because, of course, the uh, hottest show in town is going to go down in price as the event approaches. But okay. So now that we're done talking about our friends at SeatGeek, let's get back to players who we think have gained elite status over last year. I want to go to the next guy. Here's someone who we knew was good. He had a good rookie season, but last year he showed us how good he was. He went from 64 points to 78 points last year. The question is, of course, can he do it again? And I'm talking about Johnny Goudreau on the Calgary Flames. I guess the big question here is, does he still have room to grow? If he had 64 points two years ago, 78 points last year, does that mean he's going to be over point per game next year? Or maybe he's peaked? And I guess at the very least, can we bank on him to be at least a 70-point guy for sure? What's your take, Brian? Like, how high can Johnny Goudreau go? This little guy just gets so many points. This little guy just gets so many points. I think that should be like his tagline, his brand, if you will. I think a lot of people had this question, is there room for Johnny Gaudreau to grow after he had that 64-point season two years ago where he broke out on that huge line with uh, Sean Monaghan and Yuri Hoodler, and then he went into last year with so many eyes on him, see if that magic could be repeated, and then boom, he took it one step further. Elon, like you said, 78 points 
in 79 games. And what was really outstanding to me was the consistency with which he delivered those points. Like we're not talking bursts and droughts all through the season. We're talking about a point per game pace. Like look at any five, 10 game span over the course of last year. And you're going to see that he was essentially on a point per game pace in that span. He did go on three separate point droughts of four games each. That happened during the season. But outside of that, it was incredibly rare for him to even go back-to-back games without registering a point. And it's that consistency that actually makes his production even more valuable in head-to-head formats when you can't afford to have a guy going hot and cold, helping you one week, leaving you dry the next. At the end of the day, if you look at his production as a whole, even getting past all this consistency stuff, he ranked 12th in the entire NHL in points per 60 minutes in all situations, just beneath Tarasenko and head of guys like Backstrom, Pavelski, Wheeler, Kucherov, all guys that we consider elite at this point, or almost all. We'll get to one of them later on. And over the last two years, he's actually been in about the same spot. So it wasn't just a one-season show for him. Since 2014, he's sandwiched between Jason Spezza and Alex Ovechkin in points per 60 minutes scored in all situations. So, Elon, now you're asking if there's room to grow beyond this point-per-game thing. And, you know, that's a really – it's a hard question because last year was an improvement over the year before in just about every measure. And then you take into account that – He did just turn 23 three days ago. So happy belated birthday, Johnny Gaudreau. Mm -hmm. And so it's reasonable to expect that he's still going to keep getting better as a hockey player. The question is, will any personal improvement by him as a hockey player be offset by regression anywhere else in those numbers? Same spot where he found himself on the right side of luck and looking to see if that was the case last year. You know, he did have an IPP close to 80% at even strength last year which was a 20-point increase over the year before. Perhaps that levels out somewhere this year into the mid-70s, though it's not abnormal for an elite scorer to be able to maintain that 80% IPP. Do remember the cautionary tale, though, of Yuri Hoodler, who had a 90% IPP in that year two seasons ago where that line was just on fire, and he regressed back down to 70% in the next season. But the difference with Hoodler is that he had established being at about that 70% IPP level, which is reasonably average for an NHL forward, whereas Goodrow, with a really great campaign this year, might do enough to convince us that he's going to be one of those guys who's frequently hovering around 80% in his career. So that's going to be a number I'm going to be watching through the season, especially want to look back on at this time next year. But if you're asking me now if he's going to maintain the IPP of an elite scorer, or if it dips back down to that of a roughly average NHL forward, I'm putting odds on the former. I think Johnny Gaudreau is the real deal. I don't know that he's going to build upon a point-per-game pace, but he's been up there with the best scores in the NHL for two years now, and I don't see it being a stroke of luck. I think he can definitely keep scoring above 70 points. I mean, I think I'm with you. Like, he was sixth in league scoring last year. I think I mentioned it before in another podcast. I'd say he was a bit underrated. Like, obviously, he was very highly valued. But I don't think people realized how good he was doing. Like you say, just consistently putting up points. Plus, you know, some things we like to look at when we're worried about an uptick in points. You know, like shooting percentage. Like, his shooting percentage actually went down 
And he actually just took a lot more shots. He went from 167 shots in his first season to 217 in his second season. That's a really positive thing. Maybe we'd be concerned that he's now playing with Troy Brower instead of Yuri Hoodler. But at the end of the year, we were talking about line mates for Goudreau and Monaghan, like Michael Furland and like David Jones. And then on the power play, I guess, with our new friend on Colorado, Joel Colborn. So, you know, it's not as if he was having this amazing other winger on his line, but he does have good defense. And I would think Dougie Hamilton's probably going to get even better, which should help him to get more power play points. I'm with you. Johnny Gaudreau, he might be. Like some people, if you have a late first round pick in your fantasy drafts next year in your redraft league, you might see some Johnny Gaudreau first overall picks for some teams, which I think would be pretty exciting. Not first overall in the draft, but first pick for a team. It seems kind of weird to think that I would pick Johnny Gaudreau as my first player off the board. But, you know, looking at the numbers, it, it's reasonable. It's reasonable. Like, it's hard to imagine that people feel like they might need to reach that high, though. And that this is what we're saying, though, is that we think he deserves to be in that top group. The question is, do the rest of the people in your pool think he deserves to be there? So that's a question you need to figure out to know where you're willing to go ahead and draft Johnny Gaudreau and Elon, you mentioned a redraft league and a keeper league. If he's available in this draft, this could be the very last year for a long time that Johnny Gaudreau is available for you to draft in your keeper league. So that might be something to consider in that situation. He definitely will be drafted a few spots ahead in a keeper league of where he would be in a redraft league if his current owner even lets him enter the draft pool again. We have a big fan here in the chat room. Dan is saying 75 to 85 points. That's his call. He thinks Calgary's power play is going to be even better. And Gaudreau will for sure be close to or at a point per game. Love Johnny Gaudreau. Okay, let's move on to the next guy. Let's see if we can have some disagreement, Brian. I think we might with this next player. I want to now talk about Nikita Kucherov, who I think also a lot of people, maybe not at the end of the season, had him as like a top potential top round elite guy. But after the playoffs he had, I definitely heard a lot of people saying Kucherov has hit that elite status better than Stamkos. I saw that thrown around on our Facebook group a whole bunch of times. And you know what? This guy delivered last year. So he had 66 points last season. That's not elite numbers, like I said, but 19 in 17 games in the playoffs. I know, Brian, you'll probably say, though, the playoffs shouldn't be predictive. Like, it's too small of a sample size. But, you know, you put them together, then all of a sudden we are close to a point per game anyways, or at least like a high 70-point pace. Plus, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with Jonathan Druin. He's going to now maybe be a fixture in the top six, which could only be good for Kucherov, giving him better potential line mates. So I guess my question, this one I think is a little bit more interesting. Should we be drafting him as a 70 plus point guy now? And also, I guess I'd be curious to get your take on him versus Steven Stamkos. So if you want to draft him based on upside, sure. You can make a reach. I think it would be a reach if you're hoping for like 75 points out of him. It could happen, but you're looking at upside in that case. I think it's more realistic to look at him as well, essentially a 70-point guy. Over the last two seasons, he has scored 131 points in 159 games played, which puts him just a smidge below 70 at a 68-point full-season pace. And, you know, the interesting thing with him, you know, if you're wondering if there's room to grow, which you asked about Gaudreau, do you know he's only two months older than Gaudreau? For some reason, I consider him like a year or two older and more experienced, but it's not the case. And like Kudrow, Nikita Kucherov has also been scoring consistently and making as much of his minutes as anyone in the league, uh, even more so than Kudrow. If you look at both 
their two years in the league together, only six forwards have scored at a higher rate than Nikita Kucherov since the 2014-2015 season. He ranks seventh in all situation points per 60 minutes. And the guy can snipe too. It's exciting because he's a goal scorer. He's 13th since 2014 in the league amongst forwards in goals per 60 minutes, ahead of guys who we know as like huge lamplighters like Tavares, Parisi, Crosby. And what's interesting about that with Kucherov is that he drops down to a top 50 ranking when you look at how often he puts pucks on net. So some of the names I've mentioned before, and you know, you think of a big goal scorer and you think of somebody who's putting 250, 300 shots on goal on net per year, not Kucherov. So that's one thing that I actually might prefer change with him or something that might just keep him on that fringe between elite and non-elite because, you know, his shock totals just aren't up there with the best of them. Again, he's ranked around 50 in the league, and I wouldn't mind if he took 50 more shots on net and scored no more goals than he does. The good news for him is that he is kind of a sniper. His shooting percentage has been pretty high for two seasons, and I'm starting to think that maybe he can keep it that way. I know some projections I've seen point to that shooting percentage as a sign that maybe he's going to regress. Maybe these close to 30 goal seasons are being a little fluky. I'm not sure that's the case. I think Nikita Kucherov is a very accurate shooter. I think he considers the opportunities he takes. And what I'd really love is if he took those 50 shots and not just missed the net on all of them, but scored on a couple of them too. So just to summarize all this, you know, I think he's going to get close to 70 points if he doesn't touch it. If he misses it, it's not going to be by much, is what I'm trying to say. And I think he's definitely a guy you're looking at keeping on your roster like a Johnny Gaudreau if you're in a keeper league situation right now going into next year, or a guy that you're looking at to add to your team as a keeper in this year's draft. Yeah, I guess you're talking about like he's going to be close to 70. We sometimes talk about ceilings and floors. That's another thing about these elite players. Like, for sure, like a 65-point floor. Like two seasons ago, Kucherov had 65 points. And Dan brings up in the chat, two seasons ago, he didn't even have that much time on ice. He was averaging less than 15 minutes of time on ice per game. And you mentioned points per 60 earlier, Brian. Like that was one of our indications that we thought he was going to do better this year because he had so many points and didn't even get that much ice time. Then last year, he had increased ice time. And overall, he had 66 points, so kind of the same. But in fewer games, he had a 70-point pace. So a little bit of an increase. Now, also, he had more power play time last year so he does seem like a guy who is being relied upon more and I feel like yeah 65 should be the floor for sure and I think 70 is very reasonable and you know if we believe what we saw in the playoffs maybe more like that was a 17 game stretch where he had 19 points you, you can't just ignore that right I mean <laughs> I I'm not can. gonna leave you hanging I have to say something immediately after that but I think I think I can ignore that if I choose to. The playoffs are a totally, totally different situation from the regular season. Right. Okay, maybe not like two totallys worth, but they are somewhat different. And we've seen in the past big playoff performers come into the next season and fall flat. One reason that you might be concerned about Nikita Kucherov, Elon, that you touched on that I want to just illuminate clearly for everybody to hear, uh, he played 180 more minutes this past season than he did the season before that and scored only one more goal and also took only 18 more shots. And that's why, you know, Elon, you talked about that points per 60 business, why we hoped for a big breakout season, but he actually didn't keep up the same points per 60 rate as his minutes increased. So maybe 
getting older, that's something he can do. Now, Elon, you asked me what I thought was a ridiculous question. You asked me to compare him or Stamkos. If I had the choice between the two, who would I take? I want to get your answer after this, but mine, well, like, it's not such a dissimilar profile between the two. I still think Stamkos wields some extra superstar power over Kucherov, so you might have to grab him before anybody else does, whereas with Kucherov, you might be able to wait a little longer for him to fall to you, depending on your league setup. Stamco shoots a little bit more often. He converts a little bit more efficiently, sees more ice time at both even strength and on the power play. All of those things could flip in Kucherov's favor at the right moment when he's in his prime and Stamkos has just exited his. But for now, I am still, for those reasons, still taking Stamkos first of the two. Okay, me too. I'll take Stamkos first. But I don't know. I'll be nervous. I don't know if I want to draft Stamkos. I get a little nervous about the injury and like you know, he's been injured before. And I mean, if I'm using a first round pick, I might just go for maybe not Kucherov or Stankos. I might take this next guy that we're going to talk about. I'm not sure. One more thing about Kucherov. I'll just say maybe as a point for a reason why he might do better. Don't forget also last season, his awesome line mates, Palat and Johnson from two seasons ago, they were both injured for long stretches and didn't play, especially Tyler Johnson, didn't really play like himself for a lot of the season. So maybe having a healthy Palat and Johnson on the roster as well as Drew in, I feel just like Kucherov's going to have an upgrade in the players he's playing with next year. So maybe like you say that he had increased ice time and didn't get too many more points. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe now if he could have the ice time and the line mates, Maybe that will be the magic trifecta that makes him get up to a point per game. That's a good point, Elon. For the record, he still played the most time last season on a line with Andre Palat and Tyler Johnson, but point taken that Tyler Johnson wasn't 100%, and he did play a ton of time with Tyler Johnson, maybe a slightly broken Tyler Johnson, and Alex Kalorn. He also saw a little bit of time, interestingly enough, with Nemesnikov and Stamkos. That was an interesting line. We'll see where everything shakes out for the next year. But of the triplets, for sure. I remember last year there was a question, is it going to be Johnson or Kucherov? Kucherov is the guy I'd take first. Yeah, I think it's it's fun. Like, I bet this is the team where I think they have the most players that could be in this podcast next year for newly elite players. Like, I could see a situation where, like, Tyler Johnson and, and uh, Jonathan Druin end up being discussed there. But, okay, let's move on to the next guy I wanted to talk about, the guy who I was saying that I would probably want over Kucherov. I want to talk about podcast favorite, Artemi Panarin. What a season he had. How can we not talk about him as a newly elite player? He's a guy who wasn't even drafted in most fantasy leagues last year. Ended up with 77 points in 80 games. That, my friend, is elite production. It's a whole other discussion about whether or not we think he's going to be able to do it again. But there is no denying that he put up the numbers that you could rely like he was a guy I had in all of my fantasy leagues. I was lucky. I got him in every single one of my leagues. And he like literally won me matchups like there was for some reason Chicago played a lot on Sundays and I remember at least three or four times where I was losing or was close on the Sunday and then Panarin got like two goals and an assist and put me over the top that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about an elite guy a guy I could depend on he was there obviously with Patrick Kane but then there's the questions there's the concerns 
Was Kane overperforming and Panarin benefiting from Patrick Kane overperforming? Is there going to be regression from either one of these guys? Then, well, that's actually the main concern. I guess it's the other little bit of a concern, which I'm curious about, which is, is there any risk of him like going back to the KHL and in a keeper league? I'm actually going to be drafting a new keeper league next season. And I guess I wonder if I should take like a first or second pick on Panarin. You're like scoffing at me so much with everything I'm saying, Brian. So I'll hand it over to you. Am I being ridiculous? You know, I just want to address that last point first so we can get it out of the way. What is, has anything led you to believe that he would go back to the KHL? Just because he was like so successful in the KHL. He was like, like famously, as he came in on the podcast, I was saying how he would, did better than Ilya Kovalchuk. Uh, and he was on the same team as him. And that's why I was excited about him. I guess you're right. Maybe I'm being like, just because he was in the KHL. So I'm afraid he'll go back to the KHL just because he has a history there. Maybe he has some friends in the KHL that are calling him up going, hey, Artemi, come back. It's fun here. Remember how good you were? That's a very unlikely scenario. And I'm not going to lend any credence to it. You said he might go back because he's a... You said he might go back because he's successful in the KHL. He's successful in the NHL. You just had a great year. I just... I just don't know. I wanted to know where you got this idea. Now I see that it was out of thin air so we can move on. You know, the funny thing about Panarin is that the one guy, he's the one guy that when I start digging into him, I actually never look at his own numbers first. I would love to see how he plays away from Kane to get a better sense of what he might be capable with, with other players in the event that he happens to play with them. But of course, fantasy owners for fantasy reasons are quite happy to see him sticking with Kane after the way they clicked in Panarin's rookie season. So let's take a look at Kane for a second. I expect him to finish this year closer to 90 points than 100, which of course is going to have some collateral effect on Artemi. But the thing with calling him elite, Elon, is that, you know, even though whatever, even if he's still likely projected for 70 points or 65 points, I don't know that I'm ready to reach for him this season as that guy, since so much of what we expect on him is riding on another player, and I've been trying really hard to put this in an eloquent way, but I think the only way I can say it is that it's not that I don't think he can hit 70. I think he's a really good bet to make it. I just, I feel like there's enough that can go wrong with the guy that you do draft, and then there's even more that can go wrong with the guy that you do draft, plus another guy to whom he's attached at the hip. So when I go and I reach for a Temi Panarin, I'm hoping that he has an injury-free season. I'm hoping that he stays on the right line all season long, gets power play time. And then I have to hope the same for a whole other player. It just seems like it throws all the probabilities up in the air and mixes them all around. And that is why I'm a little reluctant to classify our Temi Panarin as elite because I haven't yet seen what he can do on his own. And I'm still a little insecure about it. Okay, well, I mean, Johnny Gaudreau has been with Sean Monahan the whole time. I don't know. And also, I also just feel like, let me scoff at you now for what you're saying about Panarin. Because even when you talk about him, you're talking about, like, can he hit 70 points? Can we, like, rely on him to give us, like, 65, 70 points? He had 77 last year. Like, he's, he, he's killed 70 points. Okay, 65 was definitely shy. 70, 75, very reasonable floor for him. But Elon, has Sean Monaghan ever had a 100-point season no, leading the league? Yeah, I know. For sure. That's, like, that's what we all need to see. We're all curious to know, how would Panarin do? He's obviously very talented. He would be, like, great. He would still probably get 60 points, even if he wasn't playing with Patrick Kane. He'd probably be on any team, be able to get, like, that number of points. But, yeah, that's the big question. If Patrick Kane were to get injured, which is one of the th- concerns that may come up, how would Panarin fare then? 
it is a fair point. So maybe, yeah, it, he's a bit of a risky guy to reach for just because as of now, we still sort of are dependent on him playing with Patrick Kane to put up those elite numbers. You know, I just wish the Blackhawks would separate them for like a good 20, 25 games. Maybe if it doesn't matter to them, if they've already qualified for the playoffs or they're eliminated. I just want to, I just want to know. <laughs> just for fantasy purposes. Just for fantasy purposes and for real life purposes. Like, I'm very curious about this guy who came over from the KHL, outscored Ilya Kovalchuk there, as you would obviously always tell us, and <laughs> then was able to do that in the NHL after just, like, stepped right in. And Elon, you mentioned how he was a savior for a lot of people last season. He sure was. He finished so strong. Didn't he have, like, 13 points in his last five games or something crazy like that? Oh, yeah. It's actually funny. Ryan just mentioned in the chat how he benched him for his last week because the week before that, he actually went cold. He had like two and a half weeks. Remember, you were excited or you were like prepped to talk on the podcast about how Kane, I mean, sorry, Artemi Panarin has totally slowed down. Maybe he's a guy that you need to consider, you know, not starting or whatever. Ryan didn't start him. He ended the season in April with 13 points in his last five games. And in March, he had seven points in 13 games. So it was like a Jekyll and Hyde. Before that, he was like a point per game all the way through. Then like half point per game in March and then over two points a game in April. So yeah, he definitely put some people through a roller coaster. That is a real bummer if you benched him right before that insane ending. So Elon, are you calling Artemi Panarin elite? Are you including him in that group of players that you would draft right at the beginning, right at the top with the Crosbys, with the Tavares, with the Stamkos, the Burns, the Carlsons, the Ovechkins, Panarin? Ah, uh, ah. Uh. <laughs> Can I say he was elite last season? No, no. We're trying to decide who gained a status, not who performed okay. that way last season. Let me answer your question with a question. We've <laughs> talked about like Godro and Kucherov. Like, do you say that Panarin, you would want those other guys ahead of him? That's actually the question I was leading into. So first, please, you've had a moment now to redirect a question towards me. Now you have to answer. Me. I don't know. I think that Panarin's going to get, like you said, actually 65 to 70 no, points. I want, okay, so you do. I want yes or no. Is Artemi Panarin elite going into this year, in your opinion? Okay, I'm going to say like marginally yes. I'm going to put him at the exact same level as Kucherov. That's I really answer. like... I really like that you could turn a yes or no question into still something with some nuance other than yes or no. My question was going to be with Panarin's, you know, inconsistencies over the second half of the year. Does that make someone like Johnny Gaudreau, who was consistent like all the way through, more attractive to you than Panarin or not? I guess, like, the thing with him, first of all, in terms of the inconsistency, like, I don't know, Chicago was, like, for sure in the playoffs. Like, I don't even know, like, necessarily how hard they were trying at that point. Like, I don't know if that, you're shaking your head. Just answer the question. I would say that I would want to have Goudreau first, but I think I would have to think really hard about Panarin versus Kucherov. Can I, can I get away with that? Like, I think that Panarin maybe has higher risk. And maybe also has higher upside considering he did just put up a 77 point season and he's playing with a guy who also like Connor McDavid is probably the other main front runner for the Art Ross, maybe throw Crosby in there. I would say that maybe there's a higher risk, higher reward for Artemi Panarin than a guy like Kucherov, but I put them around the same place. Jeremy's saying in the chat, Kucherov, or Johnny Goudreau, Kucherov, then Panarin. Julian is saying Godreau, then Panner and Kucherov are equal. Like a lot of people, I guess, are agreeing. We're all saying, I guess, Godreau is the highest. And then some back and forth. Some people are saying Panarin first. Some people are saying Kucherov first. So, Elon, I actually, I brought that whole question up because I was ready to fight you to say Godreau is ahead of Pan- Panarin. I would prefer Godreau to Panarin. 
but I'm, I, I see we agree. So we don't have to fight. We can get along happily. And I think your oh. assessment of the rest of it was excellent. I don't even know. I think I can just log off now and you can handle the no. rest of the show. You already did that for a while. People <laughs> listening to the edited version of the show don't know this, but I already got stressed out enough. Just like, stay with me. Let's talk about a couple more players, okay? It's because Elon trashed Alex Semin. I left. No. <laughs> Why are you bringing him up? Who else, do I, who else have I ever vouched for as much without any support from you on the show? Maybe mm. the patrons can help us. Paul Stasny. Paul Stasny. But Paul Stasny's turned out pretty good. Yeah. He's looking good. Next. They, keep, they keep posting on Roto World, by the way, these updates that are like, where do they even come from? Like, it's like, Stasny's going to play with Tarasenko and I don't even remember who it was and whoever next year. And it's like, okay, maybe. Like, why are you <laughs> even saying that? Like, the lines change every day. Like, how is that news in August that Stasny's going to play with Tarasenko? Like, we'll see. Probably. I, I could have guessed that also. That is exactly what is news in August, is the answer to your question. Actually, Elon, speaking of guys circling back to guys that I vouch for heavily on the show, maybe not without your support at all, it's actually where I thought you were going when you started the whole lead up to Panarin with a podcast favorite. I was expecting Alex Barkov to come out of your Mm. mouth. Yeah, well, Barkov is a guy I threw on the list and then right away you texted me saying like, are you sure? Like, I, I don't know if I would consider Barkov elite. Here's the thing. Alex Barkov put up a 73-point pace last year. That's a higher point pace than Nikita Kucherov. So if we're talking about Kucherov, we have to talk about Barkov. The only reason Barkov isn't in that conversation is he can't freaking, excuse my language, stay healthy. It's been already a few seasons for him. He was drafted, like, I guess three years ago now. He's played three seasons, 54 games, 24 points. So forget that first season. Two seasons ago, 36 points in 71 games. Okay, actually, you know, it was just last season, I guess. <laughs> I, for some reason, I thought he was good two seasons ago also. But yeah, thirty or 59 points in 66 games last year, which, like I say, is a 73-point pace. If he could stay healthy for the whole season, that would be great. So I guess the question is, was he overperforming? Like, is that 73-point pace something that we shouldn't be able to expect next year? Like, let's say taking the injury concerns and putting them aside. I would say that he is elite if he is able to hit that point pace. My question to you was, was that sustainable production that he put up last year? Big question. Florida's gone through a lot of changes. And that's my one concern about Alex Barkov being able to manage that pace over a full season. Don't get me wrong. A lot of those changes have been positive. I'll get to them in a few minutes. But let's first talk about what we've seen from him to date. He's a guy who had gradually improved his standing over his first couple of years in the league. And then he blew us away last season, 59 points in 66 games, 73-point full season pace, like Elon said. And while his numbers were up across the board, shot attempts, shots on goal, there are two places in particular where those spikes in his numbers were curious enough to make me wonder if they may have played an outsized role in propelling him to that 73-point full-season pace. And you know me. I've been a Barkov backer for a couple years now, really excited to watch him develop and grow and be the guy in Florida. But doesn't mean that he is excused from having a high on-ice shooting percentage, for example. His on-ice shooting percentage last year jumped up all the way to 11%, which is 3.5 points above the number he'd boasted in his rookie and sophomore seasons. And his number during those two other seasons was much more in line with the league average. 11% is too high. It's unsustainable. Jonathan Huberdeau and Yarmir Yager were the other beneficiaries slash causes 
of that high on-ice shooting percentage, there's no doubt to me that we should be expecting some regression there. And that's going to be something that Barkov is going to absorb in his points total. Another favorable number of Barkov's last year that we could see regress is his power play shooting percentage. But hear me out through the whole thing, because he shot 23% last season with the man advantage. And that might sound crazy, but in a small sample size in which you have a ton of great shooting opportunities, it's actually not abnormal to see shooting percentages ranging from like 18% up to, you know, above 20%, even over the course of an entire season. So Barkov could conceivably repeat that number. It's more likely that that stays the same than his honest shooting percentage stays the same. But it's still, you know, a wonder if things go cold for him on the power play, does he still have enough at even strength to get up to those numbers that we saw from him last season? You know, I've been going on about Barkov and his huge potential for two years, and I still think he's got it. And I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I just don't know if this is the year that he does break through to that full-on next gear, 70-point pace in 82 games. Again, you know, holding that pace over 82 games. Florida is building a pretty interesting team based on, you know, it seems to be a very anically oriented front office, but they did have trouble getting shot attempts off last season. That's something that I'm wondering if they're trying to address going into this season. Do you know 28 teams last season for all the hype around the Panthers, 28 teams took more shot attempts per 60 minutes than the Panthers did. Only the Devils ranked lower in that measure. And a key driver of that was Brian Campbell, and he's now gone. So, and I do mean driver in the positive sense, like when they were getting shot attempts and winning the possession battle, a lot of it could have been attributed to Brian Campbell when he was on the ice. So we're going to see how the team copes this year. My hunch is that, you know, this year might not be one for big individual steps forward from say Barkov or even Huberdeau or Trocek. There might still be some growing pains to be had as they work to improve their system so that they are getting some possession numbers that are more in line with the rest of the league's top teams. And I'm wondering if that might be enough to keep Barkov closer to 60 points this year than to 70. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I'm going to draft him maybe like 60, 65. Also, the injury concern, it is a concern, right? I don't want to draft a guy that I'm worried about injury. And I say, like, you know, Dauber would call him a Band-Aid boy, and that would be a fair representation at this point like give me one full season and then I'll remove that label like it's still early in his career but I would like to see him play a full season so I think you're right like I don't think he's quite elite yet I do want to though address you're saying that the loss of Brian Campbell might hurt him offensively but what about the acquisition of Keith Yandel who is known to be an offensive producer especially on the power play I would hope that that would offset that It wasn't Brian Campbell's offense that's going to be missed. In fact, Brian Campbell, you know, like we watched him on the power play and we rude how he couldn't take advantage of those opportunities. It was his puck moving ability that I think is going to be missed. And I don't know that Yandel can match right up with that. Of course, Yandel being there does provide some more offensive opportunity when he's on the ice. But to get that offensive opportunity, you got to get the puck on your stick and you got to get it up the ice out of your defensive zone. And that's something that Brian Campbell really excelled at. Yeah. Okay, here's someone who I actually wanted to mention with Panarin, both because they're both Russian and because they both ended the season with 77 points. Evgeny Kuznetsov also put up elite numbers last season. 
But, you know, like, for me, I'm a little bit concerned about him still. Like, I guess it's the same concerns we had all throughout the year when I thought that he would regress. And he did end up actually having a slow run at some point, I guess, like Panarin. But, you know, he still isn't the number one line center. Like, of all the guys we're talking about, he's the only one that I'm concerned that he won't get first power play time and, like, time in the top line with his team's best players. Because, of course, there's Nicholas Backstrom there to play with Ovechkin. And then Kuznetsov last year was playing with, you know, Andre Burakovsky and Justin Williams, you know, not horrible guys for sure. And Burakovsky, we should expect to improve. But he's the guy who, I guess, I put him on the list just because I have to, because he had 77 points last year. It was elite production. But I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on him, Brian. Do we expect him to keep going up? Or do we think that that's his ceiling? Do we think that he overperformed? And also, I'd love now to hear your comparison of Kuznetsov to Artemi Panarin in terms of who you would draft higher next season. Okay, you say that like I've prepared a comparison of the two, but I haven't. So I'm going to have to think about that one as I tell you my thoughts on Evgeny Kuznetsov, who is impressive for several reasons from what he did last year. You know, you've heard me mention all episode long about the all situations points for 60 minutes. And by the way, by all situations, I just mean that counts even strength time, power play time, even shorthanded time. It's basically all players minutes are being used to calculate that rate stat for points per 60 minutes. Anyway, of all the guys I've mentioned all episode long that we've talked about, are they elite or not? Evgeny's Kuznetsov ranked the highest in that measure out of anybody we've mentioned in this episode. Last season, he was third in the league in that measure. Do you know also, I, you know, I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff at you right now. Do you know that thanks to Evgeny Kuznetsov, this year marked the first time in Alex Ovechkin's career that someone aside from Alex Ovechkin, led the Washington Capitals in scoring. <gasps> yeah, Shocker. Pretty, yeah, you know, like, at first I was like, whoa. And I was like, well, who else Who else might it have been, I guess, if Ovechkin got injured? Anyway, thanks to japersrink.com for that little tidbit. Um, well, Backstrom could have. Like, Backstrom was close to a point per game in a few seasons, so that would have been my guess. Wait, so is Kuznetsov one of those guys from the top of the show that you were saying had... Uh, the lots of uh, points, but not that many power play points. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. You got it. Way to play, bring I... that back. And at the same, at the exact moment that you needed it, what was so incredible about all of his scoring in 2015-16, he did it on the strength of his five-on-five play. He finished third in the league in five-on-five points behind only Patrick Kane and Sidney Crosby. And as you know, I respect the five on five points quite a bit because it's a harder situation to score in. And even to put that in even greater perspective, Elon, there were 107 forwards who saw more power play time on ice than Kuznetsov did. And Kuznetsov still had as many or more points than a hundred of those guys. So he didn't need that power play time to be able to work his way up the standings. He was incredible at even strength. Another thing that I loved about Kuznetsov's season was that he led the league in another stat. I love primary assists which shows that he was the one responsible for generating a lot of the points that he was able to collect on, a lot of the goals that he was able to collect on. He wasn't just a passenger picking up secondary assists all year long, getting a little bit lucky. But after all this fawning, the negative for Evgeny Kuznetsov, which you already touched on, Elon, he had just four points in his last 12 games of the season, which could have very well been enough to destroy your team's hopes in your fantasy playoff matchups. And then if you picked him in a playoff pool, thinking he's bound to bounce back, as you alluded to, Elon, just two points in 12 playoff games before the Caps got bounced. Maybe he got tired? I don't know what happened at the end of the season. Still a young guy. The question is, is he young and elite already? Or does he need to grow a little more? Well, his play 
like Panarin certainly was. He had a bit of help in Zana's shooting percentage, but his number is still very impressive on the whole, especially, again, since he was picking up points the hard way at even strength and by collecting primary assists. But the thing is that I'm still just a little too unsure of his role to be able to declare him as there, as elite for fantasy purposes, because what if he still is outside the top 100 in power play time on ice next year, you know, being like a jobber on the power play two unit in Washington, which is really only on the ice when the first unit has essentially collapsed from fatigue. What if he stays on line two all of next year? I mean, there is the possibility that maybe Backstrom centers a more defensive minded line two and Kuznetsov steps up with Ovechkin to play on the offensive line one and runs wild together. But it's still just a possibility at this point. You know, in a keeper league, there's no doubt he gets a bonus bump in your draft for almost certainly having those roles on power play one and scoring line one someday. But if you're in a one-year league and a redraft, I don't know that I can consider him up there with that elite group just yet because I want to wait another year to see if he can do what he did again without power play time and with, you know, bouncing around the top six. Although, to be fair, he didn't bounce around as much as it sounds like I'm saying or I'm going to wait until his role matches that of an elite player. Yeah, I think that's the thing for me also. Like at the end of the day, you show me all the stats you want. I want, if I'm drafting a guy in the first or second round of my pool, I want it to be someone who's on the top line, top power play. Call me old fashioned. Maybe he didn't get tired. Maybe Burakovsky and Justin Williams got tired and he wasn't able to carry them anymore to all those points. Like, I mean, a guy could only do too much playing with second rate players not to insult Justin Williams and Andre Burakovsky, but you don't draft someone in the first or second round of your fantasy pool if they're playing with those guys. So I will take Panarin over Kuznetsov next year. Keeper League, probably as well. But yeah, obviously one day, if, if Kuznetsov is playing with Alex Ovechkin, that would be fantastic. But I mean, you know, Ovechkin and Backstrom are like the same age. So there's no reason to think that they just won't play together until they both retire on the same year and like go off and have a vacation together. Well, I think I just gave a reason though, which is that maybe Backstrom is a little more capable defensively and would be better matching up against teams top lines, which would let Kuznetsov, who by the way, was I think a pleasant surprise in Washington with on defense. Like, you know, he wasn't some super stalwart, but he was still reasonable given especially, you know, everyone's assumption that he might just be a one dimensional offensive player. But yeah, Elon, we're we're agreeing here. How boring. Kuznetsov needs an elite role to be an elite player. Yeah, all right. So let's move on. We're running short on time. Thanks to everyone who's still with us in the chat room. By the way, for next time, if you're listening to this, every episode, you just go to keepingcarlson.com slash live and you can watch the show live. Join us in the chat room. It's a lot of fun. Brian, I guess let's just bring up a couple defensemen really quickly before we close out the show. Maybe like a lightning round. We can't talk about newly elite players without bringing up Brent Burns, a guy who was... Uh, using most metrics, like the most or one of the most valuable people in fantasy last year. Like he was second in the league in shots on goal. He ended the season with a 75 points as a defenseman. That is insane. The only reason he wasn't leading defenseman in points is because Eric Carlson is a person in the world. So Eric Carlson, had 82 points in 82 games. But, you know, according to a lot of metrics, maybe Brent Burns was actually more valuable than Eric Carlson, you know, take off seven points but add like a hundred more than a hundred more shots add more hits add more blocks so brent burns especially in a multi-cat league just truly elite 
I've been taking the projections I've been downloading and putting them into Fantasy Hockey Geek, which is a tool that Dauber Hockey provides. You can check it out, fantasyhockeygeek.com, and you sort of put in your league settings, and you put in a set of projections, and then it spits out a ranking. And I'm seeing Brent Burns for next year's projections as one of the most viable guys, like above Connor McDavid, just because of all of these, his ability to help with all of these categories and the fact that he does it from a defenseman spot, which is the hardest place to find points, as opposed to from a center spot, which is like the easiest place to find points. So, you know, Brent Burns was good before. We all knew he was good, but he was never a guy that was drafted in the first two, maybe even three rounds of a fantasy league. Now, to me, he's going to get drafted in most leagues in round one for sure. Yeah, the question isn't, is he now elite? The question is, how long has he been elite for? And we may have just been blind to it or taken it for granted or not expected it to last because take a look at how he's done over the last four years. Four years ago, he was on a 55-point pace albeit in only 30 games played. Three years ago, he was on a 57-point pace in 69 games played. Two years ago, he scored 60 points in a full 82 games played. And then last year, he busted out completely out of that pattern and got 75 points over the course of a full season. And Elon, you said if it wasn't for Carlson, he would have been the highest-scoring defenseman last year. If it wasn't for Carlson, Brent Burns would be the highest-producing defenseman since 2013. And not only has he done all of that point production, but Elon, you said he's a multi-cap monster. He's super great at getting shots on goal. He's been one of the league's elite shot takers for a couple of years now. And, you know, I feel like this all started to happen when Dan Boyle left the San Jose Sharks. He was their longtime power play quarterback. I'd say he was part of the old guard, except like they didn't change out any of the other guys like Marlowe or Thornton in the end or Pavelski or Couture. All those guys are still there. But Dan Boyle was a longtime QB there. He left and Brent Burns immediately saw like four or five more minutes a game. Huge increase in power play time. We know Elon, remember, he was being tried on the wing. And maybe that's why we sort of weren't sure where to place him because was he elite as a winger or as a defenseman? But as an eligible defenseman, There's no question with the numbers he puts up offensively and the peripherals he adds to that. What he's doing is not some crazy run of luck either. There's no red flag as I look through his numbers. You know, we've really been remiss not to give him his due in recent years. Like we've appreciated him, but I don't think we've ever celebrated him the way that we have some of these other guys that we've mentioned on this year's show or last year's edition of the Who's Elite and Who's Not Elite show. We talk about... You know, who are your top D-men? Is it Carlson, Subban, Bufflin, Yozy, Latang? Brett Burns has just been left out of that conversation for too long. It ends now. Brett Burns <laughs> is elite. It's official. Yeah, I guess the one concern about him, I'm not concerned about next year in a keeper league. He is 31. Do we have a concern? Like if you're start, I'm actually starting. Brian, you're in it with me. We're starting a new keeper league next season together with some friends of ours. How high do you draft Brent Burns in that case? Like, How much longer do you think he can do this? I don't know is my true answer. I mean, I'd like to see if he can repeat 75 points again next season. It was an incredible, incredible feat. I feel like he might be able to come close, but, you know, we've only seen him do it once. We saw him go from 60 points to 75 points. This is a big season for me to see which one he ends up closer to. I'm, I'm going to guess on the high end. And I think he can do it for another couple years. Okay, so then this actually leads us very nicely to the last player we're going to talk about on the show. Because in a keeper league, I'd be curious to know who you would want between Brent Burns and another guy who I think has maybe joined the ranks of elite defensemen now. John Klingberg 
on the stars. Like we were really into him last year, but no, maybe no, I don't know. Maybe people did expect this, but he had 58 points in 76 games last year, 22 of them on the power play. He wasn't Burns-esque in hits and blocks. That's not really his thing. So that's why I'd say in a one-year league, for sure, give me Brent Burns, even if I think they're going to get similar amount of points. But in terms of offense, John Klingberg is in such a great position. And now Alex Goligoski is gone from Dallas. So that's even less competition for Klingberg, as if he really was competition anyways. He's the guy who's going to play on the top power play with like Sagan and Ben and Patrick Sharp and like Jason Spezza if he's there. So like he seems like such a solid guy in fantasy. Is there any reason to expect john klingberg to not get at least 58 points like he got last year like is there any reason to expect him to go down or is that a floor for him at this point again 40 points in 65 games the year before that 58 points in 76 this year i don't see why he doesn't get another 60 points next season i agree he's a top five score point producer in all situations amongst defensemen uh you like you said his power play time maybe got eaten into a bit by Goligoski, but I don't think a lot. And there is nobody, you know, I took a quick look at their depth chart and there's nobody at all that stands out as somebody who is going to take significant minutes. The thing with Klingberg is that he did see less minutes on the power play than several other of the top scoring defensemen. So even if he sees like a marginal increase, that should help him get back to the levels that he's reached over the last year. And, you know, the the year before that was also, Really impressive considering his changing roles as he was bursting onto the scene. So I am, you know, the question is, is he elite? Is he somebody that you reach for in the top two or three rounds of your draft? That much I'm not sure because he's not so much of a peripheral guy. And he's not so dominant in point production that he really sets himself apart from the rest of the pack. Like, say, the Kevin Shattenkirks or Tyson Barrys of the world. But he's, he's close. Definitely one of the first, you know, second or third tier of defensemen that you're probably drafting from. Yeah, I mean, Klingberg is going to get you a lot of points. Like, I think that 60 points is a very reasonable expectation and maybe even a bit of upside for more. I did say, by the way, just a second ago that if Spezza is on the top power play and I got called out in the chat room right away, I don't know why he wouldn't be, except for the fact that he's a center. Maybe they want to spread it out a little bit, have Sagan on PP1 and Spets on PP2. I don't know. Probably Spets is going to be there. He was there last year. I don't see why not. But yeah. Speaking of which, Elon, if I may interject, one name that has never been considered a leader, not for a little while, that Jason Spezza, his name pops up consistently when I'm looking up all these other guys and checking their numbers and their accomplishments. Jason Spezza is there. He had an amazing season last year and is totally overshadowed by Ben and Sagan, but he does see, you know, his fair share of power play time. He does have decent line mates on a regular basis in Dallas. I feel like he's a guy who could easily be drafted in the top three, maybe four rounds of most drafts, but often falls like he's one of the last guys, at least in his tier to be drafted. 60. Eight point pace last season. He had 63 points in 75 games. I guess Spezza also kind of an injury concern. He, he, you know, he actually played most of the season last year. 75 games was actually pretty good for him, but, you know, and actually had 82 the year before. So he's been healthy in Dallas, but in Ottawa, he was known to have some, I think it was back issues or something, but he is 33 years old. Like I'm definitely not drafting him as an elite guy, especially in a keeper league and probably not, but I think he's a good floor guy, like 60 points, 
should be pretty like reliably expected from Jason Spezza. But we're not talking about near elite guys. I guess we did for a couple of guys. We're trying to talk about the elite guys. And I think that pretty much does it, Brian, for our show today. We also have a list of guys who we think have a lost elite status. But I think we're going to have to save them for next episode, which will be coming soon. In the meantime, I just want to thank everyone for watching the show and watching live or listening. We really appreciate you sticking with us throughout the summer series. Things are about to really pick up. Once we get into September, we're going to get back to doing weekly shows. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's going to be time for your draft. But we've got a lot to talk about. We've got Schmorgoli's board coming up. We've got to talk about all the Yahoo rankings and ESPN rankings and who we think is ranked too high and too low. We have some interviews coming up. There might be a bonus episode coming very soon, I have a couple. I have an interview planned. I think Brian has a couple as well. So I, I don't even know what to say. I want to thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson. I know what to say, Elon. If you are not doing anything on October 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, or even if you are, join the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fan Tracks League. It is the best, the most competitive, the most fun fantasy league in the entire world where you can compete. Maybe one day, if you earn the right against Elon or I will be facing off against a whole bunch of patrons in the upper tiers. If you are not in the league yet, though, you can get started and work your way up. It's an amazingly fun, cool system. If you head over to keepingcarlson.com slash patron, you can learn how you can get your invite. It is a perk reserved for $5 patrons of the show who also get access to our exclusive Facebook group. They get extra shows in the form of patron casts. I, I actually, I should have mentioned it. I don't know why I didn't mention the couple. Yeah, the sign-up deadline is slowly approaching. September 7th is the deadline to sign up for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. That's pretty soon. So get yourself signed up. Become a patron of Keeping Carlson. Go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And if you want more information about the couple, by the way, just listen to the last episode we did because we talked all about all the settings for the couple and all of our planning and all the work we did to try to curate the perfect fantasy hockey league settings for our patrons. You're never going to be in a more competitive league than a league with other people who are paying money to support a fantasy hockey podcast. So definitely sign up, join the couple. It's not too late. You could get in. And then in a few years, you're going to be able to have a chance to win the top tier. We've painstakingly designed it. You know what? You've pumped, you've pumped it up. Enough. You should just join it. You don't even yeah. need to. It's an amazing league with the like smartest, most competitive fantasy hockey people in the world. Yeah, and by the way, speaking of patron casts, we're going to schedule one soon because we haven't done one yet for August. So stay tuned, patrons, for that. And that's the episode where you get to ask us anything you want. I guess as the, your drafts are approaching, you might be asking about keeper questions. We're ready for anything. Okay, with that, enough rambling. Oh yeah, follow us on Twitter, at Keeping Carlson. But okay, with that, enough rambling. Let's cue that outro music. And Brian, how would you go ahead and read us the credits? All right, this episode was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Corsica Hockey, Hockey Analysis, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, ESPN, Fantasy Hockey, I think some other sites as well that I'm trying to remember as I say this, but I can't dabber Hockey's Frozen Pool, of course, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, and a shout out to our Twitter follower, Graham, I'm hoping I'm saying your last name right, Rabi, Rabi, who uh, was a savior at the last minute when I was looking for Yahoo's average draft positions. I have a beef about ESPN's average draft position stats from last year. I'll wait to share it when we get to that episode. But thank you, Graham. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, I'll also say I used Fantrax for this episode. I used their stats for my on-the-fly researching players, so they're another resource. But yes, good job, Brian, as always. And yeah, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carl's song. <laughs> <laughs>